Indonesia Shibodi, and we're here in the uh, Western Buddhist Center in the context of uh, the Buddhism in the city class, uh, one of my, actually my most favorite class, I think, of the center here. So the next seven weeks we'll uh, be hearing these seven talks corresponding to the seven points of mind training. So, um, so what is it actually about, the seven point mind training? Well, hopefully we'll find out in the course of the weeks. Um, but it is definitely a teaching that uh, has come into being in the context of the of the Mahayana, the Mahayana phase of the of Buddhism, and Mahayana Buddhism is mainly about the essence of it. I would say is about uh, or becoming a Bodhisattva. So it's 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 uh, moving towards awakening, training towards awakening, but having in mind the happiness of all. Being. So that is essential for these uh, Mahayana uh, points of view. So the Bodhisattva path, uh, you could say, um, well, leads to complete openness, complete relaxation. You could maybe envisage the last stage of the uh, Metabhavna, that kind of uh, being completely open, no limits, and having this limitless kindness, which is possible. We know this from the Buddhist tradition. People have uh, gone before us and have uh, reached this uh, stage. So a Bodhisattva is very skilled and uh, they've developed and realized all these positive qualities that human beings have as a seed in them, as a potential. So uh, qualities like compassion, qualities like patience and wisdom and generosity and equanimity. And I really like this thing about them being completely, completely relaxed. That really speaks to me. Um, so another name for uh, mind training is Lojong, which just means mind training. It's Tibetan word for mind training, Lojong. And um, I, how I view the teachings, it's, it's another path, a bit like Satipatthana, uh, but it's called mind training, seven-point mind training. And it's leading from being unskilled in working with all these qualities to being highly skilled and completely skilled in working with uh, the conditions uh, that present themselves to us in the course of our lives. And working with difficult emotional states as well, so getting completely skilled in that as well. And everyone has the potential to develop uh, these skills as long as you practice them. So that is the just a tiny bit actually about uh, what the uh, seven-point mind, tra mind training is about. And yes, it's seven-point mind training, it consists of seven points. This is just the introduction, we'll be doing point one a bit later <coughs> in the same uh, talk. But the seven-point mind training consists of 59 slogans, and at some point I've uh, created all these different uh, calligraphy slogans, so that's 59 slogans, and they're distributed over seven points. But we'll be seeing in the course of the weeks that most of the slogans are actually in point six and in point seven. Some of the slogans, some of the points have just one or two slogans, and for the um, the point, uh, the first point, we just have the one slogan for today, which I'll I'll share with you later. Now, a tiny bit, I thought about um, the history of this system, 7.9 training, the history of Lojong. It came into being about a thousand years ago and developed itself in the course of about 300 years. So we're speaking about 9th, 10th and 11th century. And um, it started to, um, to um, arise or form as a practice, as I understand it, 
in what now is called Sumatra, so that is in Indonesia. And there is a Buddhist practitioner called Serlingpa, that's the Tibetan name for somebody who is in Sanskrit called Dhammakirti. Mm -hmm. He's got a few other names, but let's just drop that. And then after that, you get a, um, a somebody called Atisha. I think some of you might know, mm -hmm. I've heard about Atisha. So Atisha is an Indian or Bengali rather. Um, uh, well, he's, he's a, um, a teacher, he's a scholar. So he's, he's, he's a, a Dharma practitioner and teaching that as well. And he, he learns about these teachings. And as I understand it, he actually travels to Sumatra to learn about this and spends a few decades learning the teachings. And then later on, you have somebody called Chakawa who then systematizes and formulates all these slogans. And that is what we base the, the current uh, mind training on. And uh, so um, Atisha, I just wanted to, 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 to tell you a little story about uh, Atisha. So Atisha apparently um, travelled to Tibet and he was from India, he'd been to Sumatra, but he'd also travelled back to Tibet and he brought these teachings to Tibet. And because he knew he was going to go to Tibet and he'd heard that people in Tibet were very friendly, he heard that, he thought, I'll just take a servant with me who is really annoying and irritating because he wanted to practice with his teachings. <laughs> so that was quite interesting. So the, in the end, it didn't, didn't turn out that the Tibetan people were that, that friendly, <laughs> I think. But, uh, but the spirit of it is that Atisha's spirit is like he'd like to use life uh, to the maximum to practice with what life presented to him in terms of difficult conditions, difficult mind states. If you've got difficult mind states and you practice with them, you transform tremendously. So that is uh, that is um, that is uh, a little story about Atisha and the spirit of the seven point mind training as well. And in terms of uh, us uh, today, um, this lineage is being transmitted through the ages, and uh, there are several people now in the world who are practicing this. I think most of you know Pema Chodron. I think, I think probably. Nearly everyone here will know Pema Chodron, and she particularly is one, I think, of the most uh, well-known practitioners of the system, seven-point mind training. But you also have people um, like um, uh, Dilgo Kienza, a bit further on, but more known in our particular tradition, who was very skilled at practicing seven-point mind training. He was one of Sangharakshita's uh, teachers, for instance. So Sangharakshita is the person who's, who's founded this whole movement that we call Tree Ratna. And uh, within our particular movement, so this is Tri Ratna, uh, there's several people who've also specialised in this and uh, who are practising this for people like, uh, you might not have heard of Vasantra, and uh, people uh, like uh, Subhuti, Vijayamala, Prakasha. And there's been retreats uh, led on this topic in, for instance, Padmaloka or Tiratnaloka or Taraloka. So in our tradition, it's also quite well known. So that's why it's now the um, the theme of this um, of this uh, international retreat. And uh, so that's a bit about the history of Lojong. And I just wanted to give a disclaimer here that in, we're not a Tibetan tradition. So this is not like a transmission in the Tibetan tradition. Uh, this whole system would be transmitted in the course of two weeks or so with people. 
sitting there all the time and listening to this. This is not a transmission in that sense. It is more meant to be an inspiration for us and, and something that we can use in our in our Dharma lives. So that's how how uh, it's meant. So let's just move on. And um, the first point of the Sun Point Mind Training is actually to train in the preliminaries. To train in the preliminaries. So this is the slogan, train in the preliminaries. And so what does that mean? Well, firstly, uh, the preliminaries are all about, um, it's like preparation work. Um, all the practices that we already do and know. And maybe if you're listening to this at home, you could reflect on, on that. What are the practices that I already know? Um, what are the practices I already do that really help me in my, uh, in my Dharma life? So you could think about mindfulness of breathing or teaching. You could think about the metabhavana, ethical practices, um, chanting mantras, uh, doing a puja. It's all of that, or reflecting on particular Dharma teachings, doing some study. So all of that, we already have a lot here in this room, if I could combine that, there's quite a lot of that experience in this room of all of these practices. So you could see these as practices that are basic practices. But I think we do not, we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that these basic practices are ever going to be redundant, as it were. People who are very, very advanced in the practices will still be watching their breath, will still be doing practice of loving kindness, because that's, that's always, that always has to be part of the practice. Yeah? So, so in that sense, it's not like, yeah, it can just drop away at some point. We need to keep practicing with this. And I was thinking about, um, it's a bit like if you're doing a, some painting, you're doing the painting of a windowsill, you've got to kind of do all the work really carefully. You need to take the paint or strip the paint. You need to do the sanding and the cleaning, etc. And then you can paint quite quickly, as it were, and it looks beautiful. But you do need to do the work. Yeah. So that's the preliminary practices. And um, the um, one of the one of the mind training, what's particular to the mind training, they're giving a set of four reflections that are very useful for us to um, motivate ourselves to do the Dharma practice. And some of you, uh, most of you probably have already heard of these practices. There's a set of four and they're called the four reminders. I've done some in this class already uh, in the last few years. So it's the four mind-turning reflections or the four reminders. Rings a bell, I think, some of you, yeah? At least one nod, that was good. Yeah. So that's the, uh, the mind-turning uh, reflection. So um, we'll go into those now. So that is actually, um, we're now moving, we, we were still in point one, but we've moved to the four reminders point of point one. Yeah, so that's where we are. So um, let's see which one they are. So first, in terms of these um, uh, reflections, the first is about the preciousness of this human body. And it's also about the preciousness of this opportunity. And um, with all the freedom that we have uh, within this um, opportunity. So what do we mean by that? It is really about actually having a body. And um, you, 
probably everybody thinks it's completely self-evident that we have this body and for most of us I think sitting here we can say that this body has most of its faculties will be intact mm -hmm. so sometimes I think about the eyes for instance <coughs> eyes they're like a treasure if you think about it they're just incredibly incredibly precious because with your eyes you can see all, all the riches around you you can learn so much so much beauty so yeah I don't really need to explain this but I don't think that we often consider our eyes for instance to be so very precious but having a body that's intact what you can do with that is just amazing and maybe we think it's in, uh, totally self-evident to have a body but the statistical chance of being born on this planet as a human being is minute it's completely minute <laughs> just consider and maybe just maybe just let this uh, uh, sink in a bit just consider all these billions and billions and billions of lives on the planet earth now seen and unseen animals especially the insects just the statistical chance to be, be born as a human being is incredibly it's just minute and then within that within that um, minute chance that we're born as a human being with all the faculties intact the chance of us coming across the teachings of the buddha is even more minute it's just just kind of tiny it's absolutely tiny can't express how tiny it is yeah so we're sitting here today and we've met the dharma in terms of we've met the buddhist teachings and that is just incredible and we're very fortunate to have met these teachings because we know as we've practiced them how they can alleviate our suffering our many many forms of suffering which we'll talk about later so the Dharma, in a sense, is like, like a sign uh, pointing the way across the desert, you could say. Um, it's the desert being all these habits, these deeply ingrained habits that we have that create suffering for ourselves and for others. So we have the Dharma and it kind of shows us some sort of orientation and the orientation will lead to more openness and more happiness and hopefully to full awakening at some point, that's, that's what we promised. So we have this potential to awaken, to be freed of illusions and enjoy expansive mind states and to benefit other people as well. So the Dharma is still taught, it's still around and it's been transmitted from the Buddha till the present day and it's accessible here in a Triratna context. And we have friends around us that support our practice. And uh, we live in a country where we're allowed to practice Buddhism. You know, lots of people in other countries cannot, are not openly able to practice their religion. And uh, yeah, we're not really going to get arrested on the street when we leave here, luckily, I hope. So uh, maybe we could just summarize that uh, by saying, Used well, this body is a ship to liberation, otherwise it's an anchor in samsara. The body is the agent of all skillful and unskillful. So used well, this body is a ship to liberation, otherwise it's an anchor in samsara. And this is a quote by Dilgo Kjetsa which I think is completely pertinent. So all of this is to motivate us to make the most of this uh, opportunity.
So next uh, we have the reminder of um, impermanence and death. So that's a reminder. And sometimes, unfortunately, we don't need to look at a piece of paper to be reminded life, life will remind us of this, the truth of impermanence and death. So our lives seem to be really robust and stable, but in reality, it's incredibly unstable and incredibly fragile. Yeah. So death comes without warning. It's, it often works that way. So we can't, we can't guarantee any kind of particular lifespan. We can't sort of protest if our life is cut short if we don't reach an average lifespan. Life can be just, yeah, it could just stop. And we know that, some of us know that we are very deeply from our own experience. Or otherwise, maybe we have this experience because something that we depended on has just stopped being available to us or somebody we were dependent on. And I had this uh, a bit of a lucid moment, which I talked about already in, uh, in, a con in this context of the WLBC, but um, I had the moment that I was watching a blackbird in my garden <coughs> a, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe a month ago, and I had an incredibly lucid moment, sort of understanding impermanence much more deeply as I saw this blackbird just, you know, just in the garden and all of a sudden his beak went down and up he came with the worm and the worm went right in and I thought, well, that's the end of the worm then. Mm -hmm. But that is how it goes. One moment, you know, you're just, and the next, yeah, you're in the stomach of the blackbird. Yeah. Anyway, so we don't have that much time actually to practice because we don't know how limited it might be and sometimes our lifespan is compared to a flash of lightning or the tiny drop of a, of a rainbow or a bubble in a stream so we don't have that it seems like we have a huge amount of time but actually that might not be the case and it isn't the case because our lives do go very fast and there's nobody here from the past um, that, can, that can, can report back. I mean, everybody's gone, go a few generations back. Those people aren't around anymore, are they? They're just, everything is gone. We don't even know the names of our great-grandparents anymore. Yeah. So, and what, what was once a, a, a very, uh, a place of a lot of um, activity might now be a room. You know, you're, you're somewhere and there's like thousands of people milling around, there's lots of buildings and then it might just be gone. It might just be gone in the course of 20 years or so. So I remember those cities that they sometimes find now in Cambodia or Thailand and they've been, uh, they've been discovered somewhere in the jungle and they find, oh, this has been this huge Buddhist city. Thousands of people live there practicing and now there's big, big, big trees on the ruins and people don't even know, they don't know about them anymore. So I thought that's, that's the kind of uh, image for this incredibly impermanent uh, nature of our lives. Okay, so um, it's, it's very important in our lives to, to be aware of our mortality. I think everybody probably knows that. But um, a lot of Buddhist uh, teachers will refer to that. And why? Because if we are more convinced of our own mortality, that will bring about... Uh, maybe a sense of peace in our lives 
And it's also interesting that if we face our, that shadow, which it is, this possibility of our lives ending, if we face that shadow, we'll be more able to be present in the moment. And the additional benefit of that, if I'm more present in the moment, I'll be more present for everybody else who comes to talk to me. So the benefits of that are quite huge. So yeah, so this is about uh, remembering our uh, mortality and this kind of accentuates or clarifies the priorities in our lives. So it just kind of shows where, where we need to put our energy. And in our case, that's putting more energy into practicing. Yeah. So we go to, um, already, we're going to our uh, third reminder. And this is a reminder which is about uh, karma and uh, rebirth and its uh, actions of consequences. So that's also a reflection uh, for, uh, as, a, as a, a part of this uh, first point of the mind training. So basically, um, basically uh, this is about, um, uh, we're trying to turn towards our difficulties. We're trying to um, know that these difficulties need to be faced at some point. Uh, we try to accept them at the same time. Uh, we need to, to take the responsibility and see what we can do. So in that sense, what we're experiencing somehow is a consequence of something. I don't know what, it's just, it is like a product of all kinds of conditions that uh, surround us. But um, we're often not aware, I think, of the consequences of our actions. Because um, you may say or say or do something, but you might not notice the effect of your actions straight away. You see what I mean? You don't instantly see what happens with that. It might show up much, much later. Mm -hmm. And or it might show up in a way that you don't even recognize as a consequence of that original action. And then combined with all the actions of all other people in the world and all sorts of other things that are going on, it's quite a complex whole. But um, if, you, if you look at, um, at our actions, you can just rely that they'll be having an effect. So what we do or not do really, really matters. And uh, so by our actions we are planting seeds and our experience tells us we are harvesting some fruits and those fruits can be painful and those fruits could also be pleasant. So all actions are preceded by mind, but all acts of mind are, are followed by acts of speech and body. So in Buddhism we've got this, the body, uh, actions in body, speech and mind. So sometimes they think, oh, why doesn't Buddhists always sit on his cushions and not do anything? But if you work on the level of mind, that is going to translate on the level of action uh, in, in, in speech and action in the body. So that's why it's so important to work with the mind. So mind is the master, and you could say body and speech are the servants. Mm. It's a nice, nice image, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and the motivation behind our actions is the key. So um, you could broadly say that um, um, they could come out of skillful mind states such as generosity or kindness or they could come out of skillful mind states and in this system it's like jealousy or irritations. You can kind of roughly rely on that, that those, those actions coming out of unskillful mind states will somehow lead to unpleasant results and those coming out of skillful mind states are going to lead to more. Um, 
pleasant, open, beneficial uh, results. So if we understand these uh, principles more deeply, we can learn how we can influence the future more positively uh, for ourselves and for others. So we don't have enough time to go into rebirth, and it's also a challenging topic, I think, uh, with our Western uh, practitioners to, to take this, Buddha, this teaching of the Buddha on board about rebirth. But I'll just say one thing. I think most of us here believe in recycling, yeah? Mm -hmm. Do we believe in recycling? Yeah, I think we're doing a lot yeah. <laughs> with recycling, even responsible citizens of, uh, of the digital age, yeah? So maybe we could just see the mind as matter that's going to be composted. Could we see it like that? So what's going on in the mind? You could use it at compost. And you'd like to leave it behind in the best possible condition. Yeah? So it doesn't really matter, I think, to whether you're going to benefit from that. Other people are going to benefit that from that somehow. You just don't know how this works. Yeah? So this composting of the mind could result in some sort of continuation in the future, but how that happens we don't know. But let's take that as, as rebirth in this particular uh, case. Okay? So I'm going to move on to uh, the fourth reminder now. So just ask your uh, concentration for another few minutes, I'm hoping. Um, the last reminder is about the unsatisfactoriness of samsara. Now, samsara is like the repetitive uh, wheel of life, like uh, the habits of our mind that lead us to our own suffering and suffering uh, of others. So the defects of samsara, it's sometimes called. So this kind of corresponds with the Buddha's first noble truth, which is about, uh, well, there is suffering. Yeah, there is suffering. In other words for suffering could be this unsatisfactoriness, uh, stress or pain. Yeah, we've all heard this. And the Buddha's word for this is dukkha. So it's dukkha. Yeah? And it's got to do with like, it's not quite right. <coughs> Something is just a bit wrong or very, very wrong. So that's dukkha. Yeah, I can call that dukkha. So, in the tradition, there's three types of dukkha, and the first type of dukkha is just the pain that comes from having a body in the first place. You know, so it's like the pain that comes from getting ill, and getting uh, aging, and well, eventually the pain of the actual physical dying process, all of that. So that is just pain that comes with having a body. That's the first type of dukkha. Now we got the second dukkha, the second form of dukkha is um, the dukkha of change, the dukkha that comes with change. And um, so we are letting our happiness depend on what's impermanent in fact. So an obvious example is like you're losing someone or you're losing something and the pain of that. But there's also much more subtle ways in which this works. And it could be like just you're not being happy with the temperature in the room, for instance. So that's the kind of subtle suffering that's, that's, that's happening all the time. The temperature is changing and you kind of think, oh, I don't like this, you know. Or, uh, well, it's just sometimes you might, uh, for instance, I have this example that I used to sleep on uh, in a particular position and, and then I got this pain in my shoulder and I couldn't sleep in the same position anymore. So the kind of pain that comes from that, the pain of things changing, yeah. So that is the second type of, uh, of suffering. And interestingly enough, the stronger the attachment to this pleasant experience, 
the bigger the suffering, which mm -hmm. I thought mm -hmm. was really interesting. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. really interesting to think about that in that kind of way. Now let's move to the uh, third um, type of uh, suffering. This is the suffering that has to do with uh, conditions, experience. So we could say a huge amount about this, but um, this is the Buddhist teachings about all experience being conditioned. Mm. And um, in the tradition, they say this type of dukkha is a bit like um, uh, like an eyelash. Just suppose that you have an eyelash in the palm of your hand. It's incredibly difficult to see that eyelash in your hand. But have you, you have the eyelash in your eye, yeah. that's very, very, very evident. It's incredibly, it's just incredibly unpleasant, isn't it, to have an eyelash in your eye. So it's, it's, it's really hard to see where the, how this kind of suffering is coming into being because we interpret reality in a way that the Buddha tells us is the cause of suffering for us. We are misinterpreting uh, reality, in, we're constructing our own reality and kind of ignoring reality and then we get this mismatch between our expectations and between what's actually happening. And sometimes you might even have, and I had this, um, I was reflecting on this on this on the bus today, and uh, uh, this is one of the reasons why I love being asked to do such stuff because I can take it much more deeply in my own experience and I learn stuff about it. So I saw on the bus reflecting on dukkha, this type of dukkha, and then um, I was also just being aware of being a bit disgruntled somehow. So I just didn't know why it was. I just felt it's like, ooh, ooh, something isn't quite right. And then I heard this child shouting um, on the bus. There were like lots of children on the upper deck. And uh, all of a sudden, I was, and I got really irritated by that. And it kind of died down instantly as well, because I could just so clearly see that I was really wanted it to be quiet, <coughs> so I could think deeply. And the, the shouting was just taking me out, and it was irritating me. So the thing is that it, about the eyelash, it's okay. I can experience a particular type of suffering, and I might not be aware of why. But then we have the teachings of the Buddha, and the teaching by reflecting on that, you could and, and using the teachings of the Buddha, you could start to actually. You get this pointer as to where the cause of the suffering might lie, because you could just try out. You could just you could just apply the teachings to your experience, and you can find out why you're suffering. And that I find an incredibly optimistic um, uh, view of um, of uh, suffering. And um, yes, yeah, so to just to bring this topic to an end. Um, we can't really find any satisfaction in this constant turning of the wheel of samsara. So we need to be convinced of this. We just really need to convince of this, that knowing that happiness cannot be found if we pursue something that's impermanent or insubstantial. So because otherwise we keep looking for happiness in places where it can't be found. So my uh, recommendation, and I think this would be the seven point, my training recommendation is just reflect on that habitual suffering of the mind, examine it and try to understand the causes of your suffering and uh, see how you could get away from it by practicing, by practicing at the Dharma and following the, uh, the Buddha's Eightfold uh, Path. So these four reminders are all about waking up, yeah? waking up, facing up to reality 
and be more motivated to practice, to make use of this precious opportunity. And then a result of that, hopefully, we'll have a clearer and happier mind and we can create positive um, conditions for our practice. So, this was much longer than I thought, but I'm not going to... I just wanted to uh, say a few things at the end. This is mainly for us after the break and maybe for whoever is watching this uh, to do um, um, at home. So a few suggestions on how to actually use this, how to use this in your lives is well, reflect on your motivation. Why do you actually practice? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And what tools do you already have? Maybe you could just make a list, reflect on what tools do I already have and use that work for me. And also interesting, what brought you to the practice in the first place? And see, do your reasons correspond to any of those four reminders? I've got a strong suspicion that they may fall into one of those categories. And could you just see how they fit in with these four reminders? And then uh, additionally, uh, just reflect on these individual reminders. You could just, it's so, it's going to be so useful to do that. So to reflect on this precious opportunity, to reflect on actions of consequences, this principle, to reflect on impermanence and death, and also examine uh, the causes of suffering and knowing there is actually, there is a way out of this suffering and, and we have evidence that there is a way out.